You're listening to The Real Wealth Show with Kathy Fetke, the real estate investor's resource. Will home prices continue to rise at this furious pace? Or do we have a housing crash in our future? Or just a slowdown in price growth? Our guest today has got a lot of information on that, so I'm excited to share it with you. I'm Kathy Fedke, and welcome to The Real Wealth Show. Frank Nothaft holds the position of Executive Chief Economist for CoreLogic. He leads the Office of the Chief Economist and is responsible for analysis, commentary, and forecasting trends in global real estate, insurance, and mortgage markets. And he's here with us today on The Real Wealth Show. So Frank, welcome to The Real Wealth Show. I've been really looking forward to this interview. I can't believe that I, I almost had to do it out of a salon when we had a rolling blackout, but here we are. Thanks for your patience. All right. Oh, absolutely. We... Thanks for having me today, Kathy. So, so honored, really, truly so honored to have you here. Um, it, a lot of people are extremely confused about what's going on and even more confused about what they should do. Should they buy? Should they sell? Should they buy investment property, apartment, single family? Our listeners are mainly investors in one to four unit buildings nationwide. Uh, so what do we, I mean, are we looking at a continuation of what we've been seeing with home prices going up with no end in sight? I mean, you know, what's happening? Kathy, this summer has been hot, and it's not just the temperatures, it's the housing market as well. As you know, when I look around the country, there are a number of markets where, of course, they have triple-digit temperatures, but they got double-digit home price growth and double-digit rent growth. And yeah. so the market is just exceptional right now. And, of course, partly that's fueled by the very low, uh, record low level of mortgage rates that's really driving demand. But it's also fueled by uh, a shortage of inventory for sale on the marketplace. And between both those forces, one driving up demand, one curtailing supply, we've got just a crazy amount of home price growth. Now, it's not just home price growth. As I mentioned, we see some a real pickup in rents, rents on single family homes. And I think that's an artifact of this um, change in uh, need for space as a result of the pandemic. Because what we've seen is that so many families, they're looking for more space inside their home and also more space outside their home. And, this, and the, the corollary of this pandemic is that it's severed the need of many workers to be co-located or located near where their employer is they can work remotely. And so that's enabled many of them to pick up and maybe move a little further out or move a lot further out and be able to afford more space, more house, more, uh, more shelter to either buy or to rent. Yeah, they don't have to try to find something in a major city or just on the outskirts of the major city where everybody else wants to live and, and it's been difficult to get in and very expensive. They can go anywhere. And that's, that's amazing. We've understood this concept at Real Wealth for 10 years. We've been a remote company and we wanted our employees to be happy and live anywhere they want and be able to own property. We understand the power of that. And what I found is that I was more effective because as a CEO, you know, how many times do people come in your office and want something? 
And if I wanted to communicate, even if the person was in the office next door, I'd send an email or a text. I wasn't necessarily going, going in there. Uh, so we discovered that without the interruptions and with more focus, we were far more productive working remotely. Do you think more companies have learned that and will continue to stay remote? Well, I think some definitely have. And that's really the, you know, the million dollar question. How many of the workers who had previously been working in an office environment, uh, working with their employer, how many now will be working remotely, either remotely full-time or some type of hybrid model where maybe they're working remotely, whatever, two days, three days, maybe four days a week or, or something like that. Um, I'll tell you a, a really interesting study that the McKinsey Global Institute put out earlier this year. They surveyed a whole bunch of occupations in different industries, actually in different countries too. And what they concluded was that here in the US, their estimate was that as many as 20 to 25% of US workers who previously had worked in an office environment could longer term work remotely three to five days a week. Wow, that's gonna be a big sea change if that does come uh, into play. And again, that's the big question. How many of those jobs that have moved remotely over the last year, how many will remain remotely? How many might switch to a hybrid model? And of course, how many will be back in the office five days a week? So that's the big question. I do think we're going to see that there'll be some, uh, some jobs that do remain remote permanent uh, and or follow a, a, um, a hybrid model, allowing workers to work remotely, maybe three days a week, maybe more. You know, what I've been telling people, and, and I mean, again, it's such an honor to have you on the show because my dog, um, data is so powerful. I imagine you were already seeing these trends and these demographic shifts of of people in high priced markets moving to more affordable prices, uh, affordable markets where they could have bigger homes and a better lifestyle. Uh, that was already happening. Uh, would you say that the pandemic has sped that up, or is it just kind of on track with what's already been going on? Oh, that's such a great question, Kathy. And and absolutely, it's accelerated these trends. And we have seen these shifts more gradual prior to the pandemic, but the pandemic really changed the rules of the game. I'll give you a really good example. Um, for example, what we saw is that in a lot of the really uh, you know big cities, uh, uh, which tend to be densely populated, uh, high cost markets. Uh, we've, we've seen some movement out of them over the years for people who are looking to buy just for affordability. That really accelerated uh, during the course of the pandemic, accelerated in places like Manhattan, uh, but also in, in the Los Angeles metro area. So downtown Los Angeles, we've got some higher, you know, you do have some high rises, you've got greater population density. Uh, consumers revealed a, a preference to um, move out of um, buildings and uh, properties like that and move further out. And with the ability to work remotely, someone who had been working for an office in downtown LA, they could pick up and move to Riverside, San Bernardino, or maybe further out. And there, the cost of shelter is so much lower than it is in downtown LA. Uh, and so that's really provided that um, um, opportunity for many families to just pick up and move further out, 
obtain more space, more shelter, uh, but also uh, shelter that's at a lower cost. Now, it didn't just stop with Riverside and San Bernardino. If you, if you believe you can work remotely uh, longer term, permanently, well, maybe pick up and move to Las Vegas or move to uh, Phoenix or Tucson or maybe up to Boise. And Boise has been booming over the last year. Uh, we've seen prices up um, better than 20% in the Boise market over the last year. Well, and then you get places like Cincinnati, Ohio, where prices have gone up even more than that. Why? Why Cincinnati? I mean, I understand, okay, Boise, there's, there's fishing, there's skiing, there's, but what's in Cincinnati? Why are, why are prices going up so much in those, area, those types of tertiary markets? Well, sometimes it's lifestyle. So the prices aren't going up quite as uh, robustly in downtown Cincinnati. But when you look at the outskirts of the city uh, in the metropolitan area, um, that's, uh, that's very um, much more suburban. Um, and you're close to a lot of amenities. Amenities, if you like the cultural events in, in downtown Cincinnati. But if you like uh, the outdoors, you've got a lot of amenities, both in Ohio and in Kentucky as well. And so uh, I think that's been very attractive for uh, many families who are looking for just that more space and uh, the opportunity to also be out near the outdoors. And, and affordability. I mean, we've, we've taken investors from California on buses and driven them through Ohio and, um, you know, Georgia and Tennessee and these areas where home prices are so, so low. I mean, I, being in California, some, some of the cars I see on the road are, you know, more expensive than these houses in, in uh, or not anymore, but it was. So we, we saw a lot of our California members go on these tours and buy investment property, but they also moved because they, you know, you don't have, when you live somewhere, you don't have to be there all the time. We have friends who actually work in San Francisco, big, big tech guy, but he wanted to live in San Diego and San Diego, believe it or not, was much cheaper than San Francisco. So he moved his family to San Diego. He'd fly every morning and Monday, Monday morning, spend a few days in San Francisco. He'd get Friday off to work remotely. So he'd be gone Monday through Thursday, go back to San Diego to live. So I think we might see more of that, of, of, people living where they want and then just going into where if they need to go in the office, going in a couple of days a week. Uh, absolutely. I, I agree with that, Kathy. Uh, we've, we've really seen a shift here uh, during the course of the pandemic. And I think some of that's going to be permanent too. And I'm really glad you mentioned affordability. Certainly markets like Cincinnati, that's one of the big attractions. That's an attraction in Riverside, San Bernardino, in some of the mountain communities in the Rocky Mountains, but also in, in kind of the center part of the United States. That's a big attraction of a lot of those uh, cities, especially some of the older cities. They look a lot more affordable than uh, a lot of the, the cities along the, uh, the two coasts. Now, I'm hearing some people say that the cities are going to have a comeback because, you know, we obviously saw people leaving and going to the suburbs. Uh, there are investors who are still buying in the big cities and, and really believe that once things open up more, people will come back. Do, do you agree with that? You know what's so interesting? It's a lot of the, the, the young people, the ones who are just entering the labor market. They're the ones who still want kind of like that excitement, that energy of being in the, um, the downtown a city area, partly for cultural events, partly for socializing and things like that. Uh, and, the, and the big change during the pandemic has been that 
um, you know, for uh, young people just coming out of school and starting their careers, um, they, they didn't need to go into the city. In fact, in a lot of places they couldn't go into the city mm -hmm. right. <laughs> because of the pandemic. And so many of them ended up staying at home and living with their parents rather than um, you know, um, renting in a, a house or an apartment with roommates or colleagues from, from college or from, uh, from uh, work or, or whatever. Uh, so that was one of the reasons why we saw some weakness in rent and prices in some of these uh, high cost uh, downtown urban markets uh, during the last year because the young people didn't come that normally they come when they graduate school and they start their jobs, they come into the, the center city. They want that, uh, that activity, that social scene and all that. Well, they, they didn't or they couldn't because of the pandemic. Now, as the pandemic wanes, hopefully, hopefully it wanes, <laughs> continues to wane. Uh, as that happens, I think we'll see more of the uh, young workers who are coming into the work Place, which you know, they'll be the younger millennials and now the Gen Z as they're coming out of college, I think we'll see them return to the downtown, to the center city, uh, to where the action is. Uh, uh, and so we will see that. Um, uh, maybe, maybe not till next year, we'll, we'll see more of a, of a resurgence back into the city, but I think that's where, uh, you know, that'll be the kind of leading edge that'll drive kind of a comeback into the downtown area. That makes sense. Uh, I do have some concerns about these cities that are starting to see these, these um, massive changes in home prices due to people coming in from other areas where suddenly everything looks cheap. But for the locals, now everything looks expensive, right? They're, the locals aren't gonna be able to afford uh, what's happening in their cities. Uh, are, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, are they going to have to move out to another area that's cheaper? I mean, how's that going to work? Or they're just going to be renters? Oh, I tell you, that is a real challenge in a number of markets, uh, uh, especially in some of these markets where um, they have a lot of additional outdoor amenities and are maybe attracting a lot of um, uh, tech workers or other workers who really have that ability to work remotely longer term. Uh, so, you know, when I look at some markets like, uh, like Denver, like Salt Lake City, Boise, Dallas, um, Austin, Texas, uh, that's exactly what we've seen. We've seen a migration, especially some tech workers into these markets, and they come with, um, you know, higher salaries, higher income. They're able to afford to buy a bigger home. They're able to outbid the locals who live in those communities but they don't have the tech jobs, are not uh, um, earning the same income, the same salaries as some of these um, uh, uh, workers who are moving into the metropolitan area are earning. And as a consequence, that's kind of pricing out some of the, the, the locals who have grown up in, in that marketplace. And that, they're finding it very challenging on the affordability dimension. It means that they may have to move further out, or maybe they have to relocate to a, an area that's got um, a lower cost of living. Yeah, that's, well, Californians have been doing that uh, to Oregon, you know, to all the <laughs> nearby states for a long time. 
And uh, I don't think the locals appreciate it unless they owned real estate before the Californians came, then they were happy. But if they were trying to get into the market, yeah, it's been uh, it's been an issue for a long time is that that big city money spreads out. Uh, I am curious about apartments. You said that single family home rents have gone up dramatically. What about apartments? Apartments uh, are beginning to come back. Uh, you know, it's so uh, interesting uh, with consumers revealing their preferences for space and ultimately for structure type. So what we saw in 2020 in the early parts of the pandemic is that um, many uh, consumer, uh, you know, tenants, but also people who were buying homes, um, they had a distinct preference for single family detached housing because there was more living area inside the home and you got some green space around the home. Uh, if they couldn't afford a single family detached, their next preference was single family attached, the townhomes, condos, row houses. Um, least favored was high rise uh, apartment buildings for rental or for sale, condominiums as well. That was the uh, structure type that was least in favor. Uh, and in between single family attached and the, and the high rise apartment buildings, was the uh, kind of low-rise garden-style apartments in suburban neighborhoods. That was in, in favor as well, uh, in more favor than high-rise apartment buildings, in less favor than single-family detached. So when we look across that spectrum of structure type, single-family detached, big demand, double-digit home price growth over the last year. In fact, in our latest CoreLogic home price index for single-family detached through the month of May, we recorded 17% appreciation in one year in our national index for single family detached. Wow. Single family attached, doing pretty well. We measured about 9% appreciation. But you can see that difference between 9% and 17%, a real revealing strong preference for detached housing. Uh, some of the weakest valuation performance if we were looking at first quarter of 2020, pre-pandemic, to first quarter of 2021, was for a high-rise multifamily rental buildings in downtown markets. Their prices were kind of flat to down a bit. Now, in the latest data through the second quarter, we're beginning to see some improvement. The apartment market has really picked up, even for um, the multifamily properties in downtown areas. Uh, comparing Q2 to Q2, and again, Q2 2020 was a lousy quarter <laughs> for the housing market. But if we compare Q2 2020, first quarter of the pandemic, to, to uh, second quarter of 2021, uh, we have seen a pickup in uh, demand and activity, even in high-rise uh, buildings. But again, a really uh, a real shift in consumer preferences for single-family detached. Uh, next for single family attached, uh, next for like garden style apartments in uh, suburban communities, and then least for high rise apartment buildings in the uh, urban core. Which must be why so many institutional funds are really looking at the, the build to rent scenario, the build to rent communities where people can live in a single family home community, a horizontal apartment, basically. Uh, do you think there could be overbuilding in that um, sector or even the demand? I don't, you know, it's a little too early to tell. I don't think so. I think there's going to be a, a good degree of appetite 
for uh, single-family rental homes going forward, um, partly because of, of uh, the work remotely, uh, partly because of some lingering or uh, concerns about the pandemic. So I think we're going to see some pretty strong demand for single-family uh, rental uh, in uh, you know the next couple of years for sure. So I'm not worried about overbuilding in that uh, build-to-rent uh, scheme. I, th I think that's actually really a, a good opportunity uh, for uh, you know investors and builders to uh, to, to uh, develop that market further. Is there any asset class that's been overbuilt in your opinion at this point? Um, in residential? Just in general, <laughs> I mean. Um... Non, non, I, ha I have some concerns on the non-residential space, because one thing we've seen with the pandemic is some question about, well, how much office space will we need longer term, especially if um, a large number of workers continue to work remotely, e either full-time or in some type of hybrid model. So we may see, uh, with the hybrid model, we may see uh, even greater use of the, uh, the hoteling option uh, in an office environment, I, again, to use the space much more uh, pro pro productively. Mm -hmm. um, but we also may see some, some um, curtailing of need for uh, office space among uh, companies just because of that working remotely. And of course, the retail sector is a, is a big question mark, um, uh, you know, especially given the pandemic and the growth of online sales. I think a lot of consumers um, really uh, you know, accelerated their use of online uh, shopping and got, got used to it. So some people come back to the stores, absolutely. But uh, I think that might be uh, something where the return to um, uh, online, um, the return to in-person shopping to the extent that we had had it pre-pandemic, I think that'll be uh, much slower uh, to come back if it, if it does come back to that level. Uh, warehouse, warehouse is doing great. Yeah, <laughs> right. Industrial space is doing, doing great. And that's partly because of all the online uh, purchasing. And that's really supported the um, uh, you know, warehouse uh, sector. So, so values are up uh, very strongly there. Yeah, it just seems like, I mean, there's so much negative news about um, about last year, 2020. It was a tough year, but there was also a lot of really big positive changes that I think could, could come from it long term. Another is just realizing that in the past, people used to come to the office sick. They'd take some Sudafed to cover it up. They didn't want to take a sick day. They wanted to go on a vacation instead. Um, so then the whole office would get sick and productivity would go down. Now, you know, it wouldn't be so terrible to say, hey, I'm sick. Can I work from home? Not spread it. I'll get, I'll be just as effective. Uh, you know, so, you know, it just seems like people didn't really get sick as much. I, I didn't get a cold or, you know, the things that you normally get over the winter because we were all just isolated. Right. So I, I tell you, it's so true, Kathy. That was the case. That, that was the case for me as well. Uh, I didn't get sick at all uh, this past uh, winter. And usually I come down with something and, and partly it's because I'm on the road traveling and yeah. you know, different events and meeting with clients and industry groups, uh, but everything was virtual. Um, so, you know, I stayed home and um, I, I had a healthier winter uh, as, uh, as a result. Uh, yeah. So I think that's a really good point about how it could have positive effects for productivity because, you know, people are staying a little healthier too. 
Yeah. And, and then just like anything, when we have change, there's opportunity and that's what we need to focus on. Not, not look at what we're losing so much as what we're gaining. Uh, my daughter's only 28 years old and she's got an email marketing business and it has just absolutely exploded because more and more companies are realizing they can sell online. They don't need that retail space. They don't need all those salespeople standing around, um, asking people if they need help and the people that walk in the store don't want help you know all that all that thing you know, now you can just go online and and, and and so there's going to be a lot of opportunity a lot of new jobs that just didn't exist before so there's exciting times but the big question that I think I know our audience has is what does the future look like and that's hard to predict but when you've got access to the kind of data you have you might have an idea where that's headed um, let's let's talk inflation. Is the supply demand imbalance enough that it will last over the next few years, or could that wane? Uh, I think the the increase that we've seen in inflation and the broad inflation metrics is just temporary. Yeah, so we've got a lot of supply chain bottlenecks that are um, causing disruptions, and that's adding to uh, why we're seeing a spike in uh, in prices on lots of different goods. Uh, you know, when we look at the housing market, one of the, the big issues is the big spike in, in lumber costs and other materials, but especially lumber uh, and some of the shortages and delays in getting appliances and um, other uh, tech equipment that, that builders would like to put into uh, homes. And that's all part of that supply chain disruption that's contributing to these delays, contributing to the delays, but also adding to costs of uh, building uh, new homes. Um, I think that's probably gonna be temporary and, uh, and still temporary means it could last for a few more months. But as we get toward the end of this year, I think we'll see uh, some of those supply chain disruptions uh, wane and uh, we'll see uh, inflation measure, measures start to come down once again. Um, longer term, I'm, I'm thinking we're probably going to see like two to at, at the high side, two and a half percent annual inflation in the out years. So out years would be, you know, 2022, 2023, 2024. So I do think we'll return to that level. Now, that's kind of like the upper bound range that the Federal Reserve says it's comfortable with. Uh, so if we return back to that level, I think the Fed will continue to uh, keep a very accommodative monetary policy, which is just fancy language for keeping low interest rates. Um, but uh, if we do see inflation remain elevated for a longer period of time, there's no question the Fed's going to uh, have to clamp down and push, that, push up interest rates more uh, quickly uh, than they had planned and probably to a higher level than it had planned. Yeah, and that's been the debate, right? And, and there's so many... Um... People that want the clicks, you know, want, want the clicks online, so they start with uh, negative news. And but the Fed is saying that it's transitory, right? That the that this inflation is it, is transitory. It, it it won't be forever. We'll see. That's it's, what, that's what the Fed is saying. <laughs> yeah, that's what the Fed is saying. But it also has never printed so much money in one year, which is it 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 seems that whenever that happens that extra money ends up in stocks and real estate. So even if inflation across the board starts to level out, 
will it in stocks and real estate? I, I don't know. I guess well, we're, it's- we're, Yeah, we're expecting uh, home prices to continue rising. So as you know, uh, they've been cooking pretty good, double digit yeah. annual increase. Uh, our uh, national CoreLogic home price index recorded a 15% increase in prices in May compared to the prior May. I think we're gonna see real big time double digit home price growth numbers on an annual basis. Uh, not only through the end of the summer, but into the um, into the fall. But then we'll start to see a gradual moderation in uh, home price growth. A moderation, not a decline in home price home prices, but a moderation. And right now we're expecting about five percent home price growth in our U.S. CoreLogic U.S. index for 2022. So that's a lot slower than today. Um, but it's still pretty good and it's still better than inflation. And I'll tell you why we're expecting a moderation in home price growth. It's basically two factors. It comes back to demand and supply. I do think that um, mortgage rates, which are record low right now, I do think they'll creep up and be a little bit higher as we get into 2022, maybe a quarter point, maybe half a point. Uh, that'll choke off some of the um, demand and affordability pressures, because with home prices rising uh, even higher over the next several months, it's just going to make it very challenging for anyone who's been in the market shopping for a home to be able to afford the down payment, closing costs, as well as the monthly payment. So between mortgage rates going a little higher and home prices going up, impacting affordability, we'll see a moderation in demand. On the supply side, as the pandemic wanes, I think we'll see more uh, homeowners being uh, receptive to listing their home for sale. Uh, here's a, here's an, an interesting factoid, uh, Kathy. The uh, median age of an owner-occupant in the U.S. in a single-family home, 57 years of age. So that means, you know, basically half of the owner-occupants are baby boomers, and you know we know that uh, you know older. Uh, older population was much more at risk uh, from the pandemic uh, uh, virus. And as a consequence, many of those baby boomers who otherwise had been planning to list their home and sell, either to downsize or maybe to relocate, uh, maybe to, uh, you know, uh, uh, to their retirement home, their second home, or close to grandkids or whatever it may be, Many of them said, whoa, I am not going to list in the middle of a pandemic. I'll wait. I'll postpone my listing till the pandemic is over. And I think that's what's happened over the last 12, 15 months for that, for that cohort. They may have been ready to sell, but they said, whoop, I'm, I'm postponing until the pandemic's over. And I, and I got my fingers crossed, but I'm hoping that when we get to 2022, pandemic will be in the history books. And a lot of these older homeowners, they'll come on the market, list their home for sale, and we'll see an increase in existing home inventory. I also think that with some of the uh, supply bottlenecks um, you know, uh, being worked through, that we're going to see more single-family home construction in early 2022. So we'll see more of a uh, inventory response, more supply in the market, a little bit less demand. That's what translates into slowing of home price growth in 2022. But no, no home price crash in sight. No, I don't see a crash. No, no, that's not to say that they'll, 
there might be some um, some pockets, some communities, some urban markets that that'll see home price decline, probably related to local economic conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, overall, uh, in in terms of the national scope, uh, I don't see any any price declines. Uh, the market is very different this time around compared to uh, what we had seen the last time during the Great Recession when prices fell. Uh, it's a very different market. The market today is underbuilt in terms of the housing market with low vacancy rates. Back in 2006, we had an overbuilt housing market with high vacancy rates. So it's really very different uh, marketplace that way. It's very different too in terms of housing finance, mortgages. Back in 2006, we had all those high risk mortgages, subprime, no doc loans. They're They're all absent from the marketplace today. Today we have very prudent, sound underwriting guidelines, and that's a that's an important difference as well. All right. Well, Frank, it has been a really again an honor to have you here. Thank you so much for sharing all your great wisdom. Sure. Hey, thanks so much for having me today, Kathy. All right. So I think that was all the questions. Anything that you wish you'd said that you didn't? Yeah, I think it's a good, a good opportunity for uh, you know investors investors who are looking to buy in the residential market. I'll mention one thing: we've got a report coming out uh, shortly on uh, single-family investors in the marketplace. And what's so interesting uh, during the course of 2020 was that the the number of single-family homes bought by investors as a percent as a per- share of total sales actually was down compared to 2019. It was down because the number of first-time buyers who participated in the market in 2020 was up so much. So if you look at just the total number of of homes bought by single-family investors in 2020, that was about the same in 2019. So it held steady. But as a percent of total homes bought, it actually came down in 2020, in part because of first-time home buyers and some um, Gen Xers who were looking to trade up uh, coming into the marketplace um, uh, during 2020. It's also interesting if you look at it over the course of 2020. So strong investor activity the first quarter, boom, pandemic hits, uh, uh, eviction moratorium going into place. Investors kind of pulled back from the home purchase market in the second quarter of 2020 not knowing how the economy was going to shake out, what the um, federal government's uh, response was going to be. Um, So they pulled back a bit. But as the economy started to uh, rebound pretty quickly, by the end of the year, uh, single-family investors were back in the market uh, looking to buy homes. And that's continued here in 2021. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, One last thing. I've heard economists, uh, I think Doug Duncan at Fannie Mae said, uh, there was a shortage of 5 million homes or 8 million homes. And there was another report saying we, we would need to build 2 million homes a year for the next 10 years to keep up with demand. Do you agree with that, given what you said about certain people putting putting their house on the market? And maybe, I, I don't know, do you agree with that sentiment? I do think we have an underbuilt uh, market. And it really depends on the part of the country that you're looking at. So for, for many decades now, for a long time, the population in the United States has prim- most of the growth has been in the South 
and in the West. For example, the latest data from the Census Bureau shows that the state with the largest um, net population gain in the past year was Texas. And Texas has been top of the charts in terms of net population gain for the last several years, so it's nothing new. But number one is, is uh, Texas, number two is Florida, number three is Arizona. Uh, so, uh, the, and those have been uh, states that have been registering big population gains for a while, uh, not just last year, but for many, many years. I think those trends are going to continue in general for the, the southern part of the U.S. and the western part of the, of the U.S. Um, so um, that's in particular where we need to see uh, more, um, more building, more building of homes um, uh, in order to meet that uh, demand increase. Um, you know, when I look across different markets, one market that's just booming is, is Phoenix. Uh, you know, home prices are up in Phoenix at a double-digit pace over the last year. Interesting, single-family rents in Phoenix are up a double-digit pace over mm -hmm. the last year, too. And that's from the CoreLogic Single-Family Rent Index. Um, so that's a market that there's a lot of demand, a lot of population moving there. Uh, and there's a lot of building going on, but we need more building there as well. So I, I do agree with the, the studies that have come out that, said, that conclude that the market's kind of underbuilt right now. We do need to have um, more housing built. Uh, and in particular, we need more housing built where people are moving to yes. in those locations where there's much more population growth. Sure. Okay. And so how can investors... Uh, learn more from you and CoreLogic? What, what are your services? <laughs> oh, uh, we've got a lot of information we put up on our, our website, uh, mm -hmm. CoreLogic.com. Uh, Look for our intelligence pages. So on the intelligence webpage, we've got our recurring blogs that I and, and my team members are, are write that provide our latest uh, you know, insights and trends on the housing and mortgage market. And uh, also include our uh, reports that we put out. CoreLogic has a, a wealth of data and uh, uh, products that we release, such as the uh, uh, home price index that I've mentioned, the single family rent index, our report on loan performance indicators, such as delinquency and foreclosure rate. And of course, we produce the Case-Shiller home price index as well. So those are some of the recurring reports that go up there. Uh, we have a home equity report that we do once a quarter. So we'll have a new home equity report coming out uh, soon. Uh, and of course, with double-digit home price growth, that means home equity wealth is rising at a pretty good clip as well. I don't know if you know this, but I got to interview, I got to debate Robert Schiller on Fox News in 2012. <laughs> yeah. Right. And it was very interesting because at the time he said, you know, he thought it was maybe not a great time. The headline was, you know, his side of the debate was it's not a great time to buy. And my side was, what do you mean? You know, like home prices have hit bottom and interest rates are low and it's the best time ever. And by the end of that interview, he agreed with me. So I'm going to say I won <laughs> that debate. <laughs> no, that was really fun. All right. Well, it's such a pleasure to have you here on The Real Well Show. Hope to have you back soon with uh, more great news about what's happening in 2022. Sure. Thanks for having me, Kathy. And thank you for joining us here on The Real Wealth Show. If you'd like to get a little bit more data on different markets around the country that are seeing double-digit growth, 
both in prices and rents, and where there's still a great opportunity to get cash flow and appreciation, you can visit realwealthshow.com. There'll be a list of cities where uh, we have teams that find the properties, renovate them to rent condition or better, and also offer ongoing property management. Many of these teams also build brand new homes for investors to buy as rental properties to meet that strong, strong demand for rental property across the country and to help investors create an ongoing passive income for retirement. Again, at realwealthshow.com, you get a list of the cities and a list of teams in those markets who can help you find rental property. You'll also get referrals to insurance companies, mortgage brokers, uh, 1031 exchange people, all kinds of resources for investors at realwealthshow.com. I'm Kathy Fetke. Thanks so much for joining me today. We'll see you next time. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to realwealthshow.com.